Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation. Uh, We are back, of course, in chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7. We'll begin this morning, uh, really what's going to end up taking uh, two messages. So this week, next week, our brother Tim is going to be up here uh, preaching, and then the following week we'll take part two. And it really, just in the providence of God, turns out to be an appropriate section of Scripture to be in for this Christmas season as we remember the birth of our Savior who was born to be a king, who is a king, who is the Lord of Lords, who is to be adored and worshipped by his people not only now but for all eternity. And that's precisely where Revelation takes us, really the whole book, all of Scripture, but particularly here in chapter 7 as we have these scenes that are the, the scenes that we'll experience at the end of the age as the people of God and particularly what God's going to do at this end of the age when much destruction is going to come upon humanity. But then we have this glimpse. We have other glimpses throughout the book of Revelation, but we have this glimpse particularly here in chapter 7, not not only of the judgment that is to come, but of the salvation that God is going to work and accomplish for His own glory. And so to introduce this next section, I want to remind us that God has always called his people and designed his salvation, his very design of being present among his people, uh, so that they might be a witness to a dark world. He has designed that he would call a people to himself, that he would work through a people chosen, that he might bring glory to himself, that he might have a witness to himself in the world. We see this all the way beginning with the fall. We see it with here, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We see it as we walk through the pages of Scripture, beginning in Genesis 3 on. We see Enoch, who was a man of God and through his life was a witness to the world. We see Noah, who was a preacher of righteousness, even as God was preparing to destroy the entire world through a flood. We see Abraham, who continually was a witness to kings and others as the presence and the power of God was with him and blessing him as he had been called out by God to be a blessing to all of the nations. We see Israel that was blessed by God and was to be a light to the nations, was to be a witness to the world. They never really quite got that, but Jesus affirms this even in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to the Jews still under the Old Covenant, where he said, you are the light of the world. That was always to be the intention. God's blessing to Israel was meant to be a witness to the world. Just listen to a couple of passages. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 2 and verse 7 says this, God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known in the earth. Your salvation among all nations, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Verse 7, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all of the earth. And that was always to be the end of God's blessing to the nation of Israel, that they would be a witness to God, that all the, to all the earth, that they would see that and say, how great is the God of Israel, how great is his salvation. Israel, of course, ultimately failed in that mission in her history. She ultimately failed to be that light, and so this mission was taken up by the Son of God himself, who came and who was a light of the world. He was a light of the world, a witness to all men of the salvation of God and the fulfillment of all of the promises of a Messiah, of redeeming his people. He then, after he was crucified, having accomplished the work that he came to do, having provided atonement for his people, having risen from the dead, having ascended back to the right hand up to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people then to be a witness to him in the world. He said to his disciples in John 15, again, just listen, verses 26 through 27, he brings these things together. 
He says, when the helper comes, here referring to the Holy Spirit, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. That was a promise uniquely given to the disciples who would lay the foundation of the gospel and of the witness of Christ, beginning on the day of Pentecost when the fulfillment of this promise came true. And it says in Acts 2.33 that he sent the Spirit. That's what they were, was witnessed on the day of Pentecost. He had received the promise, sent the Spirit. And he had told his disciples before that in Acts chapter 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So God had intended his people to be a witness to him, to be his witnesses, the witnesses of his salvation. And the fruit and the effect of that witness was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. He wasn't, he wasn't sending his people out to be a witness in the hopes of to see what might happen, to see who might believe. He sent his people out to be a witness to the world to accomplish his purpose and to gather in his elect that he had foreordained before the foundation of the world. And yet that gathering in was only going to happen as the word went forth and as the witness of Christ went forth. To understand the sovereignty of God is to understand that God always accomplishes his purpose through means. And the means of salvation is the preaching of the word of God, the witness of Christ. Romans 10, how will they be saved? It is only by the hearing with faith. That actually is a great confidence to God's people. It is the great confidence to know that God has ordained the fruit of his word. God has ordained what he intends his word to accomplish. Ours is to be faithful, to be obedient to him, to be witnesses to him. And what comes from that witness is according to his eternal purpose and plan. And that is actually a great confidence to God's people. It means then that he, no matter how impossible things may look to us, will accomplish his purposes. He will bring about what he has ordained to bring glory to him. He will build his church as he has planned to build his church. Imagine how much courage that gives us. Imagine, I think of this, how crazy was the message when the gospel first went out in the first century world. Imagine that. You had up until this point, God worked exclusively through the nation of Israel with all of her ups and downs, but it was exclusively through the nation of Israel we're looking at nearly 1,500 years of history of the world that it was through a nation that God worked out his redemptive purposes, gave his plans, gave the prophets, had, gave the temple, the priesthood, and all, all of that stuff. And then all of a sudden, you have this Jew appear on the scene who claimed to be the son of God, went about, so it was heard, doing miracles and such. But ultimately ended up on a Roman cross in the most shameful and horrific display of what they saw as weakness and guilt that could be imagined. Ridiculed by his own people, betrayed by his own people, scattered by his closest, betrayed by one of his own, and then scattered and left even by his own disciples who did truly know him. And then here you have this message come out to this Gentile world's uh, steeped in paganism and all of their gods and false wish, uh, worship. And you have this message go out and them saying, hey, this Jew, oh, this Jew rejected by the nations, this Jew who was crucified on a Roman cross, this, he actually was the son of God. He actually was the creator of the universe. He actually was the only one who has provided atonement for your sins and the only one through whom you can be saved. There's salvation and nothing else. And all of the gods that you worship and have worshipped for centuries are nothing. They're meaningless. They're vanity. This is the one true God. Can you imagine how insane that message sounds? How crazy that message sounds? And yet that is the message that went forth argued and reasoned from Scripture, proclaimed through the mouth of his witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is through that message that the church was formed. 3,000 souls at once, and then it's eventually spread, as was said in Acts chapter 1-8, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. 
God had ordained the church to be established through the message. And it was by his power and the faithfulness of his people to be witnesses to that gospel that the church would be formed and he would accomplish his purposes. Now, why do I mention all of that as we come into Revelation chapter 7? Because in essence, that is what is held out before us in Revelation chapter 7. As we looked at last week, we have in the midst of all of this judgment and all of this destruction and all of the wrath of God that is going to begin to be poured out on an earth in rebellion to him, standing against his purposes, we have this message, this promise, this certainty through this vision that salvation is still being accomplished by God. In the beginning of chapter 7, it is through these 144,000 Jews who believe the gospel and are witnesses to him and are the means of bringing in masses of others of humanity, not only from their people, but also from the whole world. And so in the midst of all of the destruction and all of the depravity and all of the sin and all of the wrath and all of the rampant evil and all of the sense of hopelessness, God gives hope in Christ, a hope that goes beyond the grave and the suffering and the sin and the rise of evil and a certainty that he will accomplish his plans of salvation. And so it is a glorious promise. Let's begin by reading it, the passage 9 through 17, and then we'll look at verses 9 through 12 together. This morning. After these things, this is, of course, after the salvation of the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered saying to me, these, then one of the answers answered saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. And they will hunger no longer or thirst anymore. Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How refreshing it is to have this promise in the midst of the destruction. In the midst of the wrath and in the midst of the holy justice of God poured out upon the sin of man. And we have this beautiful picture of salvation. Let's look at it first and just note the scene of worship. The scene of worship. And that's what we'll look at in verses 9 through 12. Notice what he says. A phrase you're familiar with. We looked at it, considered it briefly last week. He says, after these things I looked or after these things I, I saw. As we noted before, this is a way that it's a phrase that John uses to introduce a new vision. A new vision. And here is a new vision from the one we just saw. And what does he see in this new vision? He says... He looked and behold a great multitude. Here is the use of behold to bring our attention, to, to alert us to the grandeur of the sight. And what is the sight? It is a great crowd or a very large crowd. How big is this crowd? Well, he describes it in this way. He says, a great multitude which no one could count. It's beyond counting it's so large. It's a number too large to fathom, something that his eyes can hardly take in. Now, he just noted a very clear number of 144,000, which we would admit is a large crowd. But this one far exceeds that, excuse all attempts to quantify. It's similar to what he said back in chapter 5, verse 11 of the angels when he said, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands. Another way just to say so large, 
one can hardly fathom it. Now, you know, this is important to remind ourselves that up until now, I've noted a few times, and Scripture makes clear that most of humanity, by both the testimony of Scripture and by our own experience, what we see in the world, most of humanity will not be saved. Most of humanity will not be saved. Jesus himself said, even of those who are religious, not even counting all of those who don't make any attempt to believe the revelation of God. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. This is tragic. But here's the other side of that. Many untold numbers, numbers beyond what we can imagine and what we can account, out of that mass of humanity will be saved. They will be redeemed. They will be the fruit of Christ's redeeming work. They will be brought to know God and to worship Him. Heaven is now filled and will be filled with innumerable redeemed people and myriads upon myriads of holy angels who will worship God together. That's very encouraging. But let me ask this question because this is the big question in terms of our understanding the connection here. What is the connection between what we just saw in the 144,000 and here? How are these two related to each other? How are these two visions related to each other? How are the 144,000 Jews related to this great multitude and this crowd from every tribe, nation, and tongue here in chapter 7, verse 9? Well, as you can imagine, there's a variety of suggestions. Some suggest, as I think I briefly noted last time, that the 144,000 is merely symbolic. It's representative of a very large number. And so when he mentions the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, he's really referring to the church because Israel, in this understanding, always refers to the church every single time, basically, in the New Testament. And so therefore, he's describing a particular number of the 144,000 representative of a large number that's now explained through this great multitude. Well, I, that's kind of hard to see it that way. Uh, it assumes, first of all, rather than defends the symbolic nature of the number, it just assumes because this has apocalyptic characteristics in terms of its genre as well as other characteristics that therefore every number is to be automatically seen as symbolic. Of course, unless you're talking about the seven churches, although that does have a sense of fullness, but those are seven literal churches. We noted that last week. So it simply assumes it, and it, has, it doesn't make any attempt to try to explain the specificity of chapter 4, or verses 4 through 8. It also fails to account or make any sense of the distinction of the makeup of the two groups of Jews and Gentiles. He refers to large groups throughout Revelation. What, what is the sense of naming the 144,000, naming specific tribes with a specific number, specific names, and then simply just saying a large group? He could have said that back in chapter 5 when he was talking about the worship before Christ, when he was talking about the worship of all of heaven before the throne. It doesn't make any account of that, really, that makes sense. It fails to account for why there is a very specific ethnic and religious distinctive in one group, and yet all of that is just thrown away in this next number where it's every tribe, nation, and tongue. Again, it's hard to see that as the answer. Nor does it seem reasonable to say that this is the redeemed of all time, specifically because verse 14 says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, something we'll look at in a couple of weeks. They are specifically defined, so unless one simply wants to talk about the entire reality of God's people, and some that hold this position do, is, is a tribulation and can be captured in that idea of the great tribulation, ignoring everything else that God has used to specify that as a very specific time. So unless we ignore that as a specific time, there's, we can't include all of the, the suffering from all of, or all of the God's people through all of the ages. That doesn't make any sense. And it's for that same reason that it's not likely to say that these are the, the saints who have already come out of the first three and a half years. Again, the Great Tribulation is a specific period of time very defined, both in the Old Testament 
by Christ himself and by its description in Revelation as well. So then, who are these? What is the connection? I think the best answer is this. This great crowd from every tribe, nation, and tongue, this great crowd which cannot be numbered, who came out of the great tribulation, are the fruit of the witness of the 144,000 who are saved from the tribes of Israel. This is the connection. And I would suggest this may even be best seen as a fruit or the beginning of the fulfillment of what Paul himself anticipated in Romans chapter 11. Let me just give you one passage here. If you remember in Romans chapter 11, Paul did not say because there was only a remnant of which he was a part of the Jewish nation that therefore the nation of Israel is completely done away with, is no longer a part of God's plan. It's now only the church. That's not what he said. As a matter of fact, he said something quite striking and unexpected. He says, I'm speaking to you and referring to his ministry to the Gentiles to say that he wants through the fruit of the Gentiles, of the fruit of the Gentiles believing the gospel, to make Israel jealous. He says that in verse 11. But then he says something interesting in verse 12. He says, now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, in other words, the, the focus of God from the nation of Israel, that's who Jesus came to. That's what Paul acknowledged. The gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greeks that came to the Jews. They rejected it. And therefore we have in the record of this in the book of Acts, Paul's ministry as he was called out to the Gentile nations. And so it says if their transgression, their rejection of the gospel, their sin, if that became then the riches for the Gentiles, listen to what he says, how much more will their fulfillment be? When they do actually turn to the Lord, when they do actually turn to embrace their Messiah, when they do actually believe their own Old Testament scriptures, when they do actually believe Moses, what glory will that be for the nations and for the world? I think that is in part of what we're seeing here. God, as he promised, and we'll... Consider this a bit more at other places. His beginning is fulfilling that promise to save his people. And in their salvation, through ultimately their suffering, which is to come in great measure like they've never suffered before, he is bringing riches of salvation and glory and redemption to the world. And so he saves then these of the Jews from verses 4 through 8. And the result here is this great multitude which no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. And this mirrors, as I've already noted, the worship that we've already been or already encountered back in chapter 5, verse 9, just for example. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking, worshiping Christ. To take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Again, this is just a reminder that God's love and God's election extends to all of creation. I want you to notice just one thing here just by observation. Uh, well, you wouldn't notice it here, but going throughout Revelation, this same description is given of those who are in the world who are in opposition to God. Matter of fact, it's a description of chapter 11, just going to mention them to you, of those who rejoice over God's witnesses being killed in verse 9. Those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues of the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. And they will rejoice. And it says they'll send gifts to one another, celebrating because these, two, these prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. It's the same language that describes the kingdom of the Antichrist in chapter 13, verse 7. It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority, listen, over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Speaking of the evil kingdom in chapter 17, verse 15, same thing. The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. Chapter 14, 6, it's a reference to all of those who dwell upon the earth. 
Then if you look at verse 9 here in chapter 7, he says this really just wonderful little word there. He says, from, from, out of, out of the tribes and the nations and tongues and peoples who stand in rebellion to God. Out of that same group, God calls for himself a people whom he will redeem. And really this is, that, that being parallel to each other, demonstrates this two realities, this, these two seeds, that there are two spiritual peoples that exist on the earth and always have ever since the fall all the way to the end of the age. Remember what he said when he was cursing the serpent? He said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first part of the verse, he says, I will put enmity between your seed and between her seed. There's going to be a seed of the serpent who stands in opposition to God, and there's going to be a seed of the woman who represent those who believe the promises of God, who are redeemed by God, who are the true worshipers of God. And that's how it always is. And you're in one camp or the other. You're not in a middle ground. There's no neutral territory. There's no safe zone. You're either a part of the seed of the woman. You're in the camp of Christ. You are of the redeemed or you are outside of that camp. Here he's marking those who are inside that camp. Those who have been redeemed. Those who have tasted of the glory of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And again, this is what was anticipated. And I want you just to notice one of the reasons I want to bring this up. There's multiple, but one. Is to see the unity of Scripture. The absolute unity and consistency of Scripture. The speaking with one voice of Scripture. This is what was anticipated through the vision of Daniel. You'll remember that great vision in chapter 7. Let me just read it. He says in verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days. He was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is the anticipation of Scripture. But even that is subsumed under an even larger promise. And really here we're probably meant to see an outworking of the promise of God to Abraham. To Abraham. Remember the promise that God gave to Abraham? Genesis chapter 12. What did he say in verse 3? Through you all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God is going to accomplish something. He's going to accomplish redemption, beginning in terms of his covenant with this here with Abraham. Let me just remind you of one of the a passage you're familiar with. Let me just read it for us. Genesis 15. And you remember the story that Abraham was given a promise, but he was childless. He was old. Sarah, his wife, was old. God reaffirming this promise before he had brought it about in chapter 15 said this. He says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not fear Abraham, verse 1, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abraham said, oh Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. A similar promise is given, interestingly, in reference to Ishmael. You remember Ishmael was the son of Hagar, Hera's maidservant, whom she convinced Abraham to go in and bear a child, thinking that would be the way to bring about God's promise, but it wasn't. But nonetheless, God even made a promise to Ishmael of a similar nature, and he said this in Genesis 16.10, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now one day, those would be descendants who would worship the God of Israel, the true God, worship Messiah, the Christ, but for most of the history of the world, they actually stand in opposition to the people of God. Are we not seeing that even today before our eyes in the conflicts that are going on in the Middle East? 
Now, the promise that God made to Abraham includes physical descendants. It includes physical descendants. That is part of the promise. It's just not the fullness of it. But listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 1.10. And I'm just going to mention this. 1.10. He says, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. In other words, they were a great multitude. This was the second generation of Israel that was taken out of Egypt, the first generation having died in the wilderness. Now this is the generation ready to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan, ultimately under the leadership of Joshua. And he's looking at them as a great people spread out, ready to cross over the Jordan to enter into this land. And he says, you are like the stars of heaven in number. Your multitude is so great. He's speaking there of the physical descendants of Abraham. He says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Again, just let me read it. Verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. But this wasn't the ultimate and the fullest fulfillment because ultimately those who would be the true children of Abraham in the fullest sense, not only through the lineage and the covenant made with Abraham, but through the spiritual realities to share in the faith of Abraham. And that's the glorious thing that we, even as the church and the Gentiles, share in. So he made a promise because of Abraham's obedience in offering up Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. He says, he affirms the promise and says that you'll have descendants, you'll have a seed. One is a seed is going to come from you and it's going to be a great, great multitude. He says this. Actually, in verse 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Galatians chapter 3 is going to pick up on that promise. And he's going to refer to the ultimate or the essence of that seed would be the Lord Jesus Christ when he told to him, now the promises were spoken to Abraham, verse 16 of chapter 3, and to his seed, his descendants, his physical descendants, but he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather as to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And then he says, where he said previous to that in verses 6 through 7, even so Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are sons of Abraham. So we have a lot going on here. Let me just simplify this in this way. This promise of the seed, ultimately a promise that God would make out of Abraham a great nation and a great people. That's the people who entered in the land. Those are the descendants The ultimate promise, however, looked forward to a people who would be of the same faith as Abraham, not to the exclusion of physical descent, but to the fullness of what that meant in his covenant to believe God as Abraham had believed God. That was a promise that even the Gentiles would share in, and that's what Paul was saying. Those who are of the faith of Abraham are the true sons of Abraham. But that is not to the exhaustion of all of the other promises to Israel. Even as it was not the exhaustion of the promise to Abraham that a physical nation would come or even that there would be a remnant. He says ultimately it wasn't even about that. It was about Christ who would be the source and the foundation and the very essence of that promise. That a seed would come, so it refers to one as Christ as the foundation, but yet it's also collective. In other words, that seed refers to all of the seed who would come. He uses it in multiple ways. But right now, what does that mean, and how does all of that relate to 144,000 and the multitudes that come out? Well, let me just simplify it by saying this, how Paul explained that. Right now, what that means is that most of the Jewish nation is temporarily hardened to these promises and are not the true Israel, are not 
the fulfillment of the promise that God ultimately anticipated that he gave to Abraham. He says, temporarily they are hardened. And quoting from Paul in Romans chapter 11, he says, and so from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, right now, they're enemies. They are outside of the gospel as a whole. They are not receiving the promises of Abraham, but that is not the end of the story. In the future, such as recorded here and anticipated by the prophets in Christ himself, they will be brought to faith in Christ. They will become true children of Abraham, and they will fulfill the role that God ordained for them now to the glory of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. I think that is what we're seeing here. From every tribe, nation, and tongue, the fruit of Israel finally by God's sovereign purpose being the vehicle through which in a glorious way fit for this time at the end of the age, they would be a light, they would be a witness of God, and through that witness, men from every tribe, nation, and tongue would come to know Christ. Notice... Nextly, then, about this group. He says, They are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, being clothed in white robes and having fig branches in their hands. So, their description is they are a great multitude. And it goes on to say, They are a great multitude standing before the throne, clothed in white robes and holding palm branches. They are positioned before God's throne. The picture seems to be, as we looked at in the past, of these kind of concentric circles that you have the throne and the lamb there next to the one who sits on the throne. You have this other group of angels, the elders and so forth, then the four living creatures. And then you have outside of that, this circle of redeemed, this masses of humanity uh, that are here being identified as called out from the great tribulation. Let's just make a few brief observations. One is they're standing before the throne often also referred to in reference to the Father as the one sitting on the throne and in the presence of the Lamb. This is Father, Son, the risen Christ, always together, always in unity, sharing in the worship of the heavenly realm, sharing in the glory of the work of redemption, sharing in the judgment of the world as God. This is the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father ordaining, Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying, all revealing the glory of God. These are clothed with white robes. We've encountered that before. This communicates ultimately their salvation, being clothed in the righteous sacrifice of Christ. We'll look at that later. In verse 14, he says, These are the ones, they've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's ultimately looking to their salvation that is found in Christ, their refuge in Christ. They're being covered by Christ, by His righteousness, by His sacrifice. It's ultimately... Well, it was a picture of those who are the, in chapter 6, verse 11 of the martyrs as well. It's a picture ultimately of the victory of God's people, of those who escape the judgment of the world and their own condemnation by fleeing to Christ. And then he notes this about them, and they're holding palm branches in their hands. What is that about? Well, palm branches were a part of festivity. There was the Feast of Dedication that had to do, and we're going to look at this in detail down the road, but with the purification of the temple after it had been desecrated by the evil leader, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, Judas Maccabees led a revolt. They cleansed the temple and they welcomed in this day and they celebrated it with palm branches and so forth. But that's not what he's talking about here. Some see that. Most likely what he's talking about here is this picture of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's described in the book of the law, Leviticus 24, Nehemiah 8, and other places. It was a celebration of God's covenant faithfulness in fruitful crops and a remembrance of his redemption of Egypt. They would make booze out of these palm branches and then they would live in them for seven days and they were to remember of God's great redemption of them as his covenant people, the fruitfulness and the blessing that he gave to him as his redeemed people. It evokes images of as well, celebration of victory and of peace, such as when Christ entered into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, 13, they put palm branches on the ground. 
It was to be a symbol of peace and victory, acknowledging Christ as the king of Israel, although they didn't fully understand it, but who was going to bring peace by bringing victory to Israel over her enemies. And the idea here, however, is that these are before the throne of God, acknowledging their victory, their victory over the world, their victory in Christ, and it is a celebration. It's a part of the celebration and the worship that gives him the glory for bringing it about. So they're standing before the throne. They're clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands. And he says in verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now this is really a wonderful scene again. And it focuses on the the rest of, well, it looks to the content then of their song and their their glory and their praise. And just one little observation here. Stand out as we're looking at this vision. There's this focus on the crowds, and there's this focus on the angels, uh, because he's describing the scene. But if you notice, those who are in the scene, namely the great multitude and the angels themselves, their focus is where the throne. Their focus is on Christ. Their focus is on God, and that essentially is the essence of true worship. And they are lifting up voices in powerful unity. A crowd that cannot be numbered offering praise to God. Now interestingly, he doesn't mention it here, but in other references to praise in Revelation, he refers to it as song. I mentioned it earlier, verse 9 of chapter 5. They sang a new song. He says the same thing in chapter 14, verse 3, chapter 15, verse 3. This reflects the praise of God's people throughout the Psalms. Continually, they were to praise him with harp and with lyre. They were to sing with timbrels and sometimes with dancing. They were singing songs of praise to God. We noted before how music was a part of the prescription of Israel's worship to God. They were to worship him in song. And I would just note here that the design of God that is that he would create and delight in music lifted up to him in praise. And that this praise would be the joy in the heart of his people. God created the human voice for truth, for righteousness, and for praise. It's its great occupation. Here it is, the great occupation here of the redeemed. And I, and I, want, I want to note here that there's something uniquely powerful to the soul that we experience even as the redeemed when we come together corporately and we sing to God, isn't there? When you hear the powerful and the strong singing of God's people gathered together and you hear their voices in praise, it does something thrilling in the heart of those who know Christ and love him in the soul. There's just something that that can't be mimicked in in any other way. And singing is the necessary response of a heart filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit with the word of God understood and Christ truly perceived. So he says in Ephesians, you're familiar with it, to be filled with the Spirit and singing in one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to God in our hearts. That's, that's, the, that's a work of the Spirit. He connects that same fruit to the Word dwelling in us. And so we get the picture of that being filled with the Spirit is having the Word in us understood, given spiritual perception by the Holy Spirit. Hearts that embrace what we see, ready to conform to Him with all of our lives. And one of the chief expressions of that is song and music lifted up to Him. Joy, happiness. And then He's going to give a list, particularly in Ephesians, of submission of our lives to Him wanting to conform to him. So there is even behind here a picture of the fullness of the spirit of a heart filled with joy, of eyes that truly see Christ, who are truly experiencing the glory of his presence and of his salvation and can do nothing else but offer to him worship in song. And so again, we sense it here when we sing together and our hearts are truly full and delight. It's one of my favorite things really in the world, is when we're together and you just powerfully hear all of the voices of God's people singing songs. That's why one of my favorite, maybe for many of you too, is a cappella, when the music stops and we hear the voices alone and it's not weak and it's not feeble, it's not timid, but it's strong and it's singing out in unison together. It thrills the heart. For those of you who have been to the Shepherds Conference in California, the men 
One of the highlights that that is often talked about is when you have 3,000 men in the sanctuary singing hymns to God. And these voices all together is powerful. I haven't been there personally, but I've seen and even just seen it on video. I, I love it is at the G3 conference, and you have particularly, which is done on purpose, not a big band, but just this crowd, this auditorium of thousands of people with one piano up front, and they're singing together these hymns and these songs and these spiritual songs. And I would just make as a footnote here, too, this is a problem with much contemporary music in worship in song at many churches because you've been there where the sound of the instruments loud, it's so loud, you can't hear the people. All you hear is the voices. That kills worship in my heart. It destroys it. The the joy is to hear the voices of God's people. Music is meant to support that, to undergird it, to encourage it, not to overpower it and drown it out. But an interesting observation, too, here is this. That's not John's experience, though. He hears all of the voices of the people of God who have been redeemed, who are a part of this crowd, which can't even be counted, and they're singing together the praises of God, worshiping Him. And one interesting observation, too, is note, they're all united by a common language. They're all singing together. And we see here as well uh, a fulfillment, an even fuller fulfillment and reflection of the reverse of the curse of the Tower of Babel where language was confused and people were separated. We see the beginning of God turning that around and bringing back, creating a new humanity together as the one people of God in Christ at Pentecost in the gift of tongues. They all understood each other. That curse of the language was removed and they were praising God together in a way that could be understood, though they were from all different backgrounds. Here it is even more where we have every tribe, nation, and tongue and there's no interpreters. They're just before God with one voice and with one language offering up praise to their Savior. And what do they praise Him for? It says, with one, they cry out with a loud voice. We could say a loud voice and with one voice together saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this really is the end and the purpose of God in salvation. He says in John chapter 4, you'll remember Jesus said, for such the Father seeks true worshipers. That's what the Father seeks. God is creating for himself a people to worship. And in that worship to know the fullness of joy, which is why we, he created us to begin with. What does it mean, though, the content? He says they give him praise for salvation. That is simply to say that all the glory and the honor for providing and accomplishing their salvation belongs to God. And salvation is best seen here in its fullest sense. It certainly includes, and at the very essence and heart of it, is salvation from sin. But it's salvation from all of sin, both in terms of their sin and their guilt, in terms of the sin of the world that they existed in. It is to be totally freed from that and brought into the presence of God. It is deliverance in its fullest possible sense. It really is a a foretaste of what was promised or mentioned by Paul in Colossians 1 where he says we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Salvation has been taken out of that domain and that darkness that we lived in and being brought to the fullness of God's presence with joy. He says the salvation, their salvation, they praise him because it's only found in him in his sovereign work. One noted this, the strong expression reflects the depth of gratitude of the crowd and a determination to give credit where credit is due to God and to the Lamb. And I want to note here that this is indeed a mark of the true believer. There is a deep sense for those of us who know Christ, a deep sense of our own inward helplessness, guilt, and sin of ourselves that we are in in and of ourselves hopeless and that we have, as Paul himself said, no good thing. If you're a true believer and somebody compliments you regarding your morality or your character, there is within the heart of a believer an easy deflection, an instinctive reflex spiritually, an impulse to say, no, that's not me, it's the grace of God. It is the salvation of God in me. 
There is a, a deeply, sincerely understood and felt sense that in me, I could accomplish none of these things. I'm only guilty, but the grace of God, the grace of God has met me, and I have trusted in Christ by his goodness to me, and therefore that is why you see what you see. The believer delights to deflect all praise from self to Christ. It disdains the idea of taking credit to ourself for anything. Again, even the Apostle Paul, no good thing dwells in me, that is, within my flesh. And so he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And even when he talks about the things that he accomplished by the grace of God, he says, it's not me, but the grace of God within me. This is a reflection of true salvation. It's to give God all of the glory for it. And to say, if I'm saved, I'm saved by grace. If I do good, it is because of his grace within me. If I have any hope and strength, it's because God, has, by his goodness, has granted it to me in Christ. Praise to his name. And then, he says, this worship is taken up by the rest of those around the throne, the angels, in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before God and the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so now this great multitude that cannot be numbered is joined with all of the presence of the angels already myriads of myriads. We looked at in thousands of thousands. And here we notice that the angels themselves they're not having experienced redemption as those did who were called out of the great tribulation as man were as man redeemed, but they marvel at God's salvation. And you remember that Jesus said the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents in Luke chapter 15. Peter said they long to look into the glories and the wonders of salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. And you can imagine how marvelous this is because Hebrews 2 tells us that. He only gives help, not to angels, but to men. None of the angels, when they fell, were saved. When they sinned, it was one and done. That was it. They sinned, no salvation, judgment. That's all. And then they look at man, made in the image of God, who sinned also, and yet they're redeemed, and they're called children of God, and Christ was sent for them. That is a marvel to them. As a matter of fact, even now, the angels probably marvel at that more than even the human redeemed because they understand with greater depth the amazement of it. Listen to what he says, Paul does in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, speaking of his ministry of the gospel, that he was to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God may now be known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means all of the angelic realm, God designed salvation in such a way that they would look at that and marvel, blow their mind. What? God redeemed them? And not did he just redeem them, but he redeemed them through the incarnation of the Son who suffered, who died, who rose, who ascended, and by the Spirit brought them to a union with himself to be God for it. They delight in that, and it says they fell on their faces and they worshiped God. A posture of complete and glad submission and it's really the picture of the heart that knows God. This is an interesting thing. Paul used this expression to speak of those who come into an assembly where the word of God is preached and Christ is held high. And he says the unbeliever is convicted as his heart is revealed and he falls on his face. Here it's the holy angels. And in one sense we could maybe suggest that it's because they are in this picture anyway, this vision, the nearest to God's presence. You remember the concentric circles, the ones closest to the throne of the living creatures and the elders and these angelic beings. And so being that close to God overwhelms them and they fall to their knees, as it were. And there's a subtle verbal connection here. Just I think it's a bit subtle, but it's there. Is This is the same word that's used and it was last used when it was 
in the mouth of those who are asking the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. And that's how a sinful, unredeemed heart responds to the presence of God. Hide us. Fall from us. Get that God away from us. Let us flee from his presence. That's Adam and Eve before they're covered with the skin. Let us get out of here, but not these angels. They delight to be in his presence and they fall down and worship. They don't want to hide. They want to rejoice and delight in him. And they say, what is the content? And here we'll end coming into the table. They worship God and they said, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Their praise is now blending with the large crowds. If you'll notice, he says, Amen. It acts as two bookends at the beginning of the praise and at the end of the praise. It's to bring emphasis to everything in between. It's like saying yes and amen. That's the idea of amen. It's affirming. It's emphasizing affirmation. It's a solid yes to a statement. And here they say, to him belongs all blessing. In other words, everything that is worthy of good and praise is to be given to God. All glory, acknowledging that all of his attributes are in display in everything that he does. And he is the end and the ultimate end of everything that he has done in the end of creation that is worthy of praise. All wisdom. That is to say, the wisdom of God who alone could plan and accomplish salvation, all thanksgiving, all gratitude and thanks is to be given to him alone who is the source of all blessing and salvation. All honor, all reverence and fear is to be given to him, all power. Here is the only one who has the power to accomplish his word and none of his enemies can stand before him and none of his word or his purposes will fail or can be thwarted. All strength, picking up on the same idea, but it's the power that brought him victory and the very victory now that his redeemed share in before the throne. It's glorious. As we come into the table... As we consider this scene, let me just make two, and I'm just going to mention it, points of application. One, it is this. God uses his people to witness and guarantees the results that he ordained. Every single person who will participate in this future worship, God has already determined before the foundation of the world, and really it's the mission of his church to go find them by being a witness to the gospel so that they can hear, and as Romans says, by hearing, they can believe and come to faith in Christ. And two, notice this. This is heaven. This is what God wants us to see, to be encouraged by. And note that God is at the center of it. This is the very definition of worship. In true worship, the worshiper gets lost in the glory and the majesty of God. There is a sense where we're aware of our own joy and our own delight in worship and so forth. But in the truest worship, self fades into the background in the light of such majesty and filled with such praise and glory to God. You want everything in the world. And there isn't that sense in the heart of true believers of true worship at those highest moments of our worship where we feel if we gave everything, it's a minuscule, it's not enough. There's no way to express the desire to give everything to him and that everything should praise him. That's why the Psalms end with all of creation, trees clapping their hands, the whole earth rejoicing to give praise to God. And this is at the heart of true worship and what we should seek to know and to find. And, and it's expressed ultimately, not merely by the sense of that in our hearts, but then in a life that is ready in every area, heart, mind, and soul, to conform to his will, to trust him, to follow him, to accomplish his purpose, achieve his purposes on the earth. And as we come to the table, we remember these things. We remember that we are a part of that crowd, we who know him. We are a part of that number, ultimately. We have been made to see his glory. To hear all of those words of both the redeemed and of the angels and to say with them yes and amen. That's what my heart longs for. That's what I want to anticipate. That's what I want to live consistent with. And so as we come to the table and remember the great grace of God, the great purchase of our salvation, let's prepare our hearts to worship him as the men pass out the elements. Father, thank you for... These sights that you give us, Lord, this world is dark. There's so much to be discouraging. We turn on the news and we only see more wickedness. We go through the day with our own hearts and we only see the battle with sin and so often we fail. We look at the promises of your word and sometimes they seem so distant from our actual experience. 
And yet, for the regenerate, for the redeemed, for those in union with you who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's what our hearts most deeply long for. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Take us to be with you. But we say as well that we want to be like you in this world. And we want to say, as you said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so we want to be a people who are an obedient people. A people who are glad submitters to the Lord Jesus Christ, to following you, our great shepherd. And we, your sheep, the people of your pasture. And we know that we're able to do this as, Holy Spirit, you show us these glories, the reality of our redemption, the future of our inheritance. And this table is one part, one way that you've established to remind us. And so open our eyes to see the truths represented here, to see the Christ that is represented in this table, to see the promise in the kingdom. We ask you to do this, and we pray this in your matchless name, Lord Jesus. Amen.